Actually, you know what we'll do is we'll go start with chapter 1. Because the first thing I'd like to do, because this is our last in the series of Galatians, I'd like to just do an overview. And I know I've gone through it periodically, but really not given it to you in this type of a way. Again, so you can just start with chapter 1, and I might be referring to a few verses along the way. Again, the epistle is known as the Magna Carta in the Bible, as far as the Declaration of Independence, the uh, declaration that proclaims our freedom in Christ from the law. And again, as you know, Paul had been at the churches, and there's a, a number of churches. This letter was written not just to one church, but to a number of churches basically found in the southern part of what we know as Turkey today. And this letter was given to them because after Paul had left after his first missionary journey, unbelievers, false teachers, came in and tried to disrupt the church that he had established. So he's writing back telling them, listen, this is the truth. These false teachers were called Judaizers. They were legalists. And the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 7, that they were troubling the church. Verse 6 talks about the fact that they were perverting the gospel. And, and Paul says, listen, if anybody preaches anything other than what I've just told you, which is from God himself, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. And you see that in verses 8 and verse 9. Let him be damned. He said it again. But as we look at Galatians as a whole, let me just throw out the three main points that he's bringing out. And it really breaks down in chapters 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. The first main question he's dealing with, because again, these are false teachers and they're saying that they have authority from God. So the first thing that Paul deals with is the question of authority. And this is it. How do we know whom or what to believe or disbelieve? How do we know who to believe? Now again, Paul and Barnabas founded the Galatian churches on their first journey. They leave, Judaizers come in, and the Judaizers are saying that they are backed by the Jerusalem church. Now think about this. Paul's gone. These guys come in and say, you know what, where it all started, Jerusalem church, that's who's sending us. And they are trying to undermine what Paul had been teaching. And he had, by the way, told the Ephesian elders that when I leave, there's going to be like people that come in just like ravenous wolves. They're going to come in and try to tear up the flock. He knew that these people, there were going to be those who were going to contradict what he said. So the question is, which, which of these two people, groups, should the Galatian believers believe in? Paul or the Judaizers? You know, they both seemed to come from God. You know, they, they seemed to have good credentials, both of them, Paul and the Judaizers. They both look good, they seem to be holy, they seem to be godly, they seem to be intelligent. I mean, it's a hard question. How do you know, how do you know that what you believe is true? So again, because again, the Judaizers were saying they were speaking for the church at Jerusalem. This is what Paul says. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel that was preached to me is not according to man. And what he's shooting at there is the church. Now, this is not coming from the church. By the way, if you've ever been involved in the Roman Catholic Church, where does their authority come from? The church. 
Okay, so this is even prevalent today. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, taught it but, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where do you get your information? Is it because the church confirms the mission and the message, or is it because it came from Jesus Christ? I like what uh, Dale said earlier. He said, you know, we need to make sure that the, the elders basically are staying the course. Well, where do we get our information from? In fact, Paul says, listen, I get it from Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that the church disagrees, because look at verse 9 of chapter, oh, let's see here, 2, 9. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, again, at the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 24, it says, They, the church, glorify God in me. In other words, the church, the true church received the information, but, it, but that's not what made it right. What made it true was because it was given by Jesus Christ. So I ask you, how do you get your information? The Bible, let me say it this way, the Bible is over the church and not vice versa. This is our source of authority, not human tradition. This is the source of authority, not the elders. And unfortunately, many people put the book, I mean, excuse me, put the book under in the sense of, and the church authority is over it. No, no, the church authority is under, if you, in this illustration. It's the Bible that dictates. And so the biblical truth takes precedent over church tradition, over church uh, leadership, over church anything. And that's really what chapter 1 and 2 is about. And it's still raging even to this day. Where do you get your information from? And hopefully you are getting your, your information about eternity and about life through the Word of God. Well, after dealing with that in chapter 3 and 4, he changes the question. Actually, he starts in verse 16, but by chapter 3, he's really... And this is the question. It's a question not of authority, but of salvation. The question is this. How can we get right with God? How can a holy God forgive sinful men? How can a holy God reconcile us to himself, restore us to his favor, to his fellowship? How can that happen? How can we be made acceptable to Him? How can we be, as the word in the, justified? It's a good question, right? We know that we are sinners, that our sin separates us from God. How, do we, or how are we made right? As I was saying last week, there are two, things, two, two thoughts out there throughout all of humanity. One is something that man achieves, that's works religion, I'm working my way, I'm achieving works-based salvation. The other side is, totally opposite of human achievement, is divine accomplishment, something that God's done. And Paul is very clear in chapters 3 and 4 that this is by divine accomplishment. Actually, we see it threaded throughout the Scripture. Um, it's what Christ did on the cross. If you, again, if you even go back to chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, "...who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age." He gave himself. You go to chapter 2, verse 20, "...the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me." 
How is a sinner made righteous before God? How are we made acceptable? It's through the cross of Christ. It's through what Christ did on the cross. It's through His sacrifice. Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. See, that adds another element. Oh, He actually took our curse. It's called imputation. He took what we deserved. The curse, the wrath of God, it was paid for on the cross. And Christ gives us, when we receive Him, His righteousness. We stand not in our own righteousness, but in Christ. It was transferred to us because of the cross. He bore our curse, and that we might receive the blessing which God had promised not only to us, but way back to Abraham. That's why he brings up Abraham, because what he wants to do is he, he wants to take Old and New Testament and say, listen, this is the plan of God. It wasn't like, you know, cross, New Testament, part two. What was it? Abraham what? Believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't because Abraham worked. It was because Abraham believed. And that same belief in God and what God could do, and that's how we get saved. Yes, Christ died, but how do we receive that? How do we, how do we, how do we get saved? Well, it is true, Christ done it all. Our part is, like verse 16 of chapter 2, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. As we put our faith in what Christ did, that is the channel, as it were, that brings salvation to the human heart. He's done it all. We don't have to do anything other than believe. It's not a work. It's faith. It's trusting in. I remember a story told by about D.L. Moody, and he had preached this massive um, crusade, evangelistic meeting. And afterwards, you know, the people had come and gone, and, and he was wrapping up, and a, and a man who could not get there uh, asked him, you know, he came up. This was as everything was being shut down. And he came to Mr. Moody, and he said, you know what, I wasn't able to uh, come to the the evangelistic meeting, but I heard that you can get saved. What must I do to be saved? And uh, Moody said, you're too late. And he said, what do you mean I'm too late? What must I do to be saved? And he said, you're too late. He said, everything that needed to be done for your salvation happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. You can't do anything for your salvation. But if you would like to put your faith and trust in the one that did die for you, you can get saved right now. And he did. See, the false teachers were saying this. This is why they were troubling the church. They were saying, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, receive Christ. But you got to keep the law. You got to get circumcised. You got to keep moving. And Paul was saying, no, 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 no. Righteousness comes through the cross. Through what Christ did. In fact, in verse 21 of chapter 2, if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. So the question of authority, where do we get our authority? The Word of God. How do we get salvation? Through Christ alone. Well, the third question, and if you go to chapter 5... And six would naturally come from this thinking. If you start thinking about, okay, 
the, the Scripture. It's salvation alone in Christ. Well, but how do I grow in holiness? And does that even matter? And the Judaizers were basically pushing the fact of, well, you know, if, you, if you're going to say that you get saved by faith alone, then I guess works don't matter, and you can just live as you please. That's what you're pushing, Paul. You're, you're pushing a, a life of sin. Because, let's face it, you're not pushing a life of holiness because you're saying works don't matter. And that's why he says in verse 5, stand fast, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the, the freedom by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. First of all, remember, you're free. But then if you go over to verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Yeah, you've been called to freedom, but don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Yeah, make sure your works move towards God. And then he says, <coughs> through love, serve one another. Why? Because love for man is an indicator of love for God. The two commandments, the greatest of all commandments, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? Your neighbor is yourself. They are connected. You love your... So really what he's doing is he's summarizing. He's saying, listen, yes, but I'll tell you what their deed is. Love your neighbor, which means you're already loving. If you're truly loving your neighbor, loving God. See, the question is one of holiness. How can we control the sinful desires of our fallen man and live in a life of righteousness and love? Well, first of all, we have to stand fast. But then by the time he gets to verse 16, he brings up again, because he had brought up in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit. See, because again, what would the Judaizers... Okay, so Paul, you're saying at least we understand you're supposed to live... You know, you're supposed to do the moral law and love your neighbor, because that was found in Leviticus... I see. Okay, so you're really agreeing with us, Paul, because you're supposed to live a life of righteousness. Paul would say, yes, but it's not your own righteousness. It's not your own strength. And so he brings up the Holy Spirit. We need to, verse 16, walk in the Spirit because it will go against wars against the flesh. We have this old sin principle there, but we need to be walking in the Spirit, a continual walk. By the way, are you walking in the Spirit at this moment? Did you just rush to this church and your heart's not even prepared? You've been singing songs to God and your, your, your heart is not even prepared to this moment. Hopefully your life is prepared to receive. We need to walk. What does that mean? That I am dependent on Him. Uh, look at verse 18. That we are led by the Spirit. Verse 25. We walk. The word is actually means keep in step. That's that keeping in step with what the Spirit wants to do in your life. If I'm going to have victory, if you're going to have victory, if we're going to be holy, if we're going to be able to truly, verse 24, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, we need to be walking in the Spirit of God. We need to walk with Him because He gives us the strength. But even that is faith. That's what He means by walking in faith. I have faith in the fact that God will provide for me what's needed in my daily walk. You're saved by faith. You walk by faith. In fact, chapter 6, verse 10 says, we are the household of faith. Everything that we do is part of faith. No part of it is that, well, I can do this on my own. When I am walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and step with the Spirit, that's faith. Because that's saying, Lord, I know that you've given me your Spirit. I know He's going to empower me. I know that you want me to trust Him. And I am. That's faith. So the question of holiness, how do we change and grow? By the power of the Spirit, through the Word of God, where our authority is found. That's the summary of Galatians. 
In fact, some of you might have said, why didn't you just give us that? And why, why did it take us 57 lessons? Because we want to get deep. At this point in the letter, verse 11, chapter 6, grab again, or Paul again grabs that pen, like he so often does, and finishes, I believe, the rest of this letter in his own handwriting. He says, look at how large of letters I, I write. And really what he's doing is he's summarizing. But he's looking at the Judaizers from a different perspective. He's showing us now their motivations. Look at verse 12. They were proud. By the way, this is what you'll find in any, the motivations of any false teachers. You'll find these. You'll find these in your own life. You'll find them definitely in people who are just religious but not true believers. They're proud. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Even in Scripture, we find like a man like Diotrephes, it says in 3 John, who loved to have the preeminence. You're going to find people within the church that loves the preeminence. Follow me. That's what he's really getting at when it talks about good showing in the flesh, that they have a good showing externally, and even the fact that, um, you know, follow me. By the way, we need leaders, but we need to have leaders who are following Christ. I get tired when a person says, well, I believe, and I say, well, where do you find that in Scripture? Well, I don't. I just believe it. No, 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 no. We need to, where, where you, this is the authority. But these people, they didn't find it in Scripture. They just wanted to have a following. But it was pride. That was their, one of their motivations. Look at their second, verse 12, second part, that they may not suffer persecution for Christ, or excuse me, for the cross of Christ. They were fearful. They didn't want to suffer for Christ. And the cross smit them. By the way, I gave you a, a I tried to give you a, a quote last week, and I messed it up, and then I gave it, I think, partly right. Let me make sure I get it. When it comes to fear versus courage, it's this. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the disregard for it. You may be called to do something you're very fearful to do, but when you disregard it, that's walking by faith and saying, Lord, I'm willing to for you. Okay? I, I believe those people that we read about, especially Voice of Martyrs, and they're killed and put in prison, they're fearful at times. But again, they still move forward. And not only that, these people were hypocrites. Verse 13, not even those who are, uh, who are circumcised keep the law. They don't even keep it. They just want to boast. There again, that pride. So we saw the wrong, wrong motivation. But then Paul says, but let me give you the right one. We boast in the cross. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that he would even say that. <coughs> in the Old Testament, there's a verse which was so neat because we actually sang about it today that talks about not boasting in any of the things of the world. It says in, in Jeremiah 9.23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. See, the Bible is very clear. We should not boast in the Old Testament except in the Lord. Same very consistent thought here. If you're going to boast... Boast in what the Lord did, the cross of Christ. See, we should be boasters. 
But it's, isn't it so easy to boast in ourselves? Isn't it so easy to boast in what we have done and our, maybe our prestige and other things? And, and Christ says, you know what, that's what the false teachers are made up of. They're just boasting in, in, in areas that they, you know, their own pride and their own hypocrisy and just getting a following. And, and Paul says, listen, you should boast, but it should be in the cross. If we're going to boast, let's boast in what Christ has done. You know, the cross, you think about it though, I could see him like Old Testament, boast in the Lord. But he said boast in the cross. Now think about that. Think about what the cross was in the, in the New Testament at that time. The cross represented an object of unspeakable horror and loathing at the very mention of, th- of the thought of it. Did you realize that in... Um, in polite society, you didn't even mention the cross. You wouldn't even mention the word cross. In fact, when a person was condemned to die on the cross, they actually used a formula like a euphemism. They would say it this way, hang him on the unlucky tree. They wouldn't use the word cross. It represented a horrific, a disgusting death. Often the, the person would hang there for two, three, four days. I mean, you would have thought that a Christian, the Christian, the Apostle Paul of all people, would have been very reluctant to admit that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He not only admitted it, but he boasted in it. Isn't that interesting? That which the average Roman citizen regarded as an object of shame, disgrace, and even disgust was for Paul a point of pride, boasting, and glory. I mean, you talk about how to win friends and influence people in the opposite way. Yeah, let's not mention the cross. Let's not mention that. I mean, let's face it, some of these people who came to the Lord would have probably had relatives on the cross, would have seen their own relatives die on the cross. He said in, uh, what was it, Nero, uh, I think killed 30,000 people in Jerusalem one time on crosses, lit them. I mean, it just was horrific. It's like having somebody die in the electric chair and then talk about, you know, my, well, the man I follow has died in an electric chair. You say, well, no, he wouldn't do that. And yet Paul said he boasted. Well, the word boasting makes more sense when you think of it as trusting and rejoicing and reveling. One author said it this way. It is our obsession. The cross is the obsession. It was the obsession for the Apostle Paul. It should be the obsession of the Christian. The cross of Christ, that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, what is he pointing to? And there's a lot of different meanings. I mean, a lot of different things you can point to. Why do we boast in the cross? Because again, that's where personal salvation was accomplished. That's why we boast in the cross. Without the cross, we would be damned. And again, when I say personal salvation, I'm saying it this way, that we boast in the fact that it is through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Therefore, all the glory goes to God alone. And Paul said, that's what I'm boasting in. You know, the other thing the cross represents, though, is that that is the place where the Holy Father, and I mean God, (laughs) the Father, 
The, the one who had wrath on humanity showed His love through His Son by sending Him. It, the cross represents God's love. Because the wrath was poured out on His Son, so it did not have to be poured out on us. That is the greatest demonstration of God's love. That's why we glory in the cross. Let me give you the one that he points to. See, I'm giving you more that are in other passages, but look at where, where Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, second part of verse 14, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is, this is what Paul says just in this one verse. And you, and you can start filling in uh, Roman numeral three, I think it is, consequences of the, of the cross, if you want to fill in these. It's a new victory. It's a new victory. See, he already has mentioned the other things I mentioned, but here he's talking about victory. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's a difference between the world and me. That's thank, Thankfully for the cross, the direction of the world is no longer the direction I'm going in. In fact, as we said last week, the world hates the cross. How can you dare say that all those people out there are going to hell unless they receive Christ? How dare you say that it's only Jesus Christ? That's why they hate it, because it is, it is only. But see, here in this place, the world, the idea is this. The world has been crucified. Death of sin. That's, that's what he's getting at in the world there. The tyranny of sin over humanity. The fact that we were born into sin, that we are sinners, that we continue to sin, that we're in bondage to sin, enslaved to the world in its wicked ways. That's been broke. The grip is off us. See, at the cross, Christ struck a mortal blow to sin's power. You know that? Because I'm afraid that many times as believers, we forget that. We struggle and struggle and struggle. It's almost like a team who goes after, you know, they've been playing this one team, for, you know, 25 years and they've lost every time. And then they have to play him again. And you know what they're thinking? Yeah, we're going to play him in October and we're going to lose. Now, this team might be like twice as good as this other team. Who knows? They had all these recruits and man, they are really able to throw the football and they're going to do it. But we're going to lose. You know, so let's just, you know, just know that at least one strike against us. Do we understand the power of the resurrection in our life? Do you understand that, that sin has been broken? Do you understand that if you're consistently living like an unbeliever, you either are or you're not understanding the power that you have through Christ? See, Christ broke the power of sin. It no longer holds us in its death grip. The chains have been broke. Now again, we still sin. Remember, we have the sin principle. I'm not saying you, you have sinned this last weekend, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll continue to sin. We can, you know, we're, it's a life of repentance. But we've got to understand, Lord, you give us the power. It's that I am disobedient. It's not that the power is not there. It's that I'm not walking, led, in step with the Spirit. You know, since this is such a key verse, in fact, many people have put this as the key verse of Galatians. <coughs> Let me look at it from one other direction. Still thinking about this death grip. Let's just look at the word crucified. Because he, again, he, he mentions the word cross and crucified, right? <coughs> How many crucifixions do you see in that verse? You don't have to say it out. but Well, obviously you see the cross 
of Christ there, right? Because it says the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the second crucifixion is you. Because he says it this way, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, that's putting faith. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are personally joined to him and to everything he has ever done for our salvation. See, that little word our is bringing in us. We are crucified with him, as it were. That's, again, that doctrine of the union with Christ or imputation, if you will. I don't want to go very far down that road. But, well, you know what I'd rather have you do? Go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Just 20. If there's another key verse in this, pat, in this whole book, it's, it's either Galatians 6.14 or 2.20. Those are the key pass, or the verses of Galatians. If you've never memorized either one of them, you probably should try to memorize them both. 2.20 talks about three aspects of this union with Christ. The first one is the fact that I am united with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been. That, that the verb, crucified, is in the perfect tense, which means this, something that happened in the past, but has a present reality. Okay? Present consequence. The idea is this, by faith, as Luther said, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated, but remains attached, but we remain attached to him forever. We are in Christ. That's, see, when he says you've been crucified with Christ, the idea is you're in Christ. In fact, he mentions that early, uh, later on. To be in Christ, to be united with Christ, means that all the experiences of Christ become the Christian's experience. Christ's death for sin was the believer's death. His resurrection, in one sense, was the believer's resurrection, though we wait for ours. But it's as, it is as true, it is as sure as if it already happened. His ascension, again, though, it is yet, though his has happened, ours will. <laughs> Past, event, present, reality, present consequences. I've been united, I've been... And that's what Romans 6 means when it says we have been united together in the likeness of his death... Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. If you've received Jesus Christ, everything that he did on the cross has been transferred to you. The second thing we see in Galatians 2.20 is, I no longer have a life of my own. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In fact, Colossians even says this way, when Christ who is our life. That's why if you get saved and you try to go back to the old life, it doesn't work. Man, I used to get pleasure out of this. I used to get fulfillment out. Why can't it work? Because your life is no longer your own. I used to get angry and it actually made me feel a little bit better. I used to get depressed and it made me a little bit better. Even though I was depressed. You can't do it. You can't go back. Because why? My identity is now wrapped up into Christ. And look at the third thing in Galatians 2.20. I live, I live in the flesh by faith in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My world no longer revolves around me. My pleasures, my prominence. It's really driven by the Lordship of Christ. And because the world hates Christ, it hates me. And because 
what the world stands for is in opposition to Christ, that's where He's moving me, to be in opposition to what the world says is important. So, I am united, my life is in Christ, I live by faith. That's all what it means to be united with Christ, or the crucifixion that I believe that you see in the word our. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm joined with Christ. But there's a third crucifixion that we've been talking about, by whom the world has been crucified to me. Okay, we got that part. And I to the world. Now, that, that's a little bit different. The world is crucified to me. In other words, it hates me. It's going to be in opposition to me. There's going to be issues. And if we don't understand that, by the way, you're going to walk around and say, well, I don't want to offend anybody. The fact that you believe in the cross is offensive. Just get over it. We just got to get over it. No, really. Didn't he, didn't he say that to... Didn't Jesus say that to his disciples? The world hates me. The world's going to hate you. Makes sense. You follow me. world hates me. It's going to hate you. We're too... I think we're too bashful and almost too... What, I don't even know what the word is. Just like, well, we don't, I want everybody to like me. Because that's how I'm going to bring Jesus, people to Christ. If, if Paul thought that, he would have left out the word cross. Because as soon as he used that word cross, it was like this to people who are unbelievers. Mm. Because they saw people hanging. They saw people hanging there for three days after they were dead and the, and the vultures would come and pick at their skin. They saw the... They would hang them naked. And then dogs would eat at their feet. They knew what the cross meant. It was the most horrible death. And to mention that meant, you know what Paul was saying? I'm not trying to win friends and influence people by the nicety of what the gospel is. But if a person comes to to Jesus Christ and says, I am a filthy sinner that cannot be saved outside of your grace, and I fall on God's mercy because of what he's done on the cross, God will receive him by faith. I am not saying to be purposely untactful and purposely in someone's face just to offend. But what I'm saying is you can say it gently, kindly, lovingly, and it's still offensive if they really understand what the cross is about. Because the cross says, you are damned without God. But God loves you and He will receive you through the cross. So the ungodliness of the world... The cross looks at and strikes a blow at all that worldliness. And that second part, an eye to the world, this is, as one man said, as Christians we no longer think the way the world thinks, talk the way the world talks, misbehave the way the world misbehaves. Now we might, then we get back on track. He goes on, we no longer take comfort in the comforts of the world that the world has to offer. We no longer value what the world values. We no longer care what the world thinks. Why? Because the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. See, that's the new victory. That's that's the consequence of the cross. We come and now all of a sudden, that's why Jesus said, I've come to put father against brother. Now, by the way, father and brother, or father and son... He wants families loving each other. But you know what? When you have a believer and unbeliever, you, you're in this. Some, some of you are in this situation. You have a believer and unbeliever. And they don't understand you. And there's a frustration. And sometimes, you know what the, the believer does? Compromises truth to try to like, well, maybe if I just, you know, and maybe they'll understand and like me and then they'll like Jesus. You know what? Gently stand for truth. Understand that there is this conflict. 
It started at the cross. It continues through you. That's why he says in Galatians 5, verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, the passions, the desire. See, the world is gradually losing its hold on us and it doesn't like it. Is it gradually losing the hold on you? That's where a journal comes in. Sometimes it's good, to, and I haven't kept a journal for years and years, but periodically I will. And what I have found is it is so refreshing when I do because I go back, oh, that's what was really, you know, gripping me at the time, you know. You you have an issue and you don't even realize it is an issue. And then all of a sudden the Lord reminds you, you know, it shows you it's an issue. This is something that you need to be changing. But you find yourself engulfed in it at first, this issue, this sin. And then the Lord works it and you feel guilty and you confess and you find help and you find the scripture and, and now, I mean, you, and you start, you stumble now versus like walking consistently in it. And now you're stumbling and the Lord keeps strengthening you in this issue that he wants to change in you. And before long, the jumps are farther apart of when you, uh, when you sin in that area. And then periodically with that issue, you, you find yourself, you know, I don't even get caught like I used to. Is that how you, is that, is that your life? Man, I used to really be a fearful person, but now I see that, oh, it's a temptation, but it's, boy, I used to really be a worrier. Whoa. Man, I, I used to just walk around and everything had to be about me, but now I see how the Lord is, no, it's about God's people and about God. Yeah, I mean, I would, man, I used to just strike out. Boy, someone would say something wrong and whoop! I mean, I would let one rip, but now I, okay, I can hold my tongue and I see how I need to be gentle and it might be a little angry here, but then, Lord, do you see yourself growing? And the values of the world that we, we used to hold real tight, do you see the Lord just taking your fingers and saying, you know what, That's, this, I, didn't save you for, I didn't save you to be comfortable here. I didn't save you to have a retirement and just end like, you know, real easy street. I saved you to glorify me to the end. And you better have your work boots on, my friend. Otherwise, you've lost a lot of opportunity. Talk about losing investments. Goes on, verse 15. This is another thing the cross does. Not only a new victory, a new creation. For in Christ, Jesus neither, uh, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Again, he's talking about, you know, how the cross makes circumcision irrelevant, but a new creation. Now you're saying, man, you got five minutes. How are you going to finish this up? These are just bullet points from this point on, pretty much. You have a new creation. Through the cross, you're a new created being. How about C, a new walk. And as many as walk according to this rule, what's the rule? Boasting in the cross. Peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. By the way, Israel of God points specifically to the Jews. Because this would be the idea. Well, you've been banging on the Old Testament law and all the things that it stood for. Does that mean the Jew is out of the picture? And he says, no. Hey, even if the Jew, Israel of God, gets saved, blessing on his life. And then finally, a new decoration or D, a new identity, however you want to say it. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The mark. That's an identity. Again, what type of treatment from others can we expect from boasting in the cross? The mark. The marks. I'm not t- this is not a mark of revelation. This is the mark. When you follow Christ, you should expect suffering. You should expect persecution. You should expect people to not like you. 
You may not have someone throw a rock in our age, at least for this, this year, perhaps. But you should expect at least people to disagree with you and not like you. And that's what he... But for Paul, he says, I, I, I have the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ on me. The, the word is stigmata. We get the word stigma. Um, it's referring to the wounds. Now again, Galatians is a very early book in Paul's writings. Up to this point, the only thing that happened to him is in Acts 9, he was told by God that he was going to have, he was going to, have to suffer many things for his namesake. And then we find him stoned in Lystra. Maybe a couple other minor things. But this is not the end of the, his life. He still is going to suffer a lot of things. But he says, you know what, I bore the marks. What do you mean? I bore the marks of being stoned. I bore the physical injuries. I've also bore the marks of people rejecting me. The Jews hating me. Probably his family rejected him. I bore the marks. In the Greek world, first century, this word was used of slaves and soldiers. I want you to get that. And what they would do if you were a slave, they would stamp or cut or brand a mark on you to show that you're that person's slave. If you were in the uh, army, a soldier would do the same thing, but this time it would point to, he is my commander. They would literally at times either brand or cut an insignia that represented, I'm his. I follow that commander. But aren't those great words the illustration for we, what we are in Christ? We are slaves of God. Over and over again it talks about we are the doulos of God. Matthew 6 says you can, no one can serve two, two slave, uh, uh, be a slave to two masters. You can't be a slave of two masters. He actually says we are slaves over and over again. We are slaves. The word bondservant or the word servant most often in the New Testament is really not servant. It actually is the word slave. Paul says, listen, I bear the mark. My mark is, this mark that you see, these marks that you see are actually showing you that I follow the cross of Christ. But not only are we slaves, we are also soldiers. Second Timothy says, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We are slaves, we are soldiers, and these marks, though they seem disgraceful to the world, that you are rejected, that sometimes you are even physically harmed, though that is disgraceful to the world, it is precious in the sight of God. John Calvin, the commentator 500 years ago, said, these marks are, quote, the decorations of war. The decoration, not declaration, the decoration. You know how you come up and the president gives you a decoration, purple heart. John Calvin said, you know what? You know what those marks are? Those are the decorations of being in the war and serving God. You know, you saw that in Paul, with Paul's other writings in Philippians 3. That Remember three times that I might know him, experientially know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be real careful here. Paul is not saying, because some people have said these marks, like you're supposed to suffer the actual suffering of Christ. No. Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. We, we, can't, we can't accomplish that suffering. See, some works religion are actually saying that's what you're supposed to do. No. That was accomplished by Christ. But because we follow the cross, we have incidental suffering along the way. That's all he's saying. That, just I, might, that I might be in fellowship with Christ so closely in Philippians 3 that I would be willing 
to suffer for him. I would be willing to be rejected for him, to be mocked for him, to be insulted for him, that I would be willing to even be bruised for him, that I would even be willing to die for him. And then at Galatians 6, uh, the verse 18, the last verse, he gives a closing prayer, a benediction, okay? He started with grace, chapter 1, verse 3, he ends with grace, verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice he uses the whole name, the Savior, the Master, God, be with your spirit. Not, a, not an external spirit, internal And that's just the closing prayer. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All who trust the gospel of free grace, all who trust in Christ alone, may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you. Isn't that a great way to end it? Isn't that a great way? Because if we're going to walk with him, it's all by grace. Starts by grace, ends by grace. By the power of the spirit of God in us. I remember a story of an old Indian And after living many years in sin, he was finally led to Christ by a missionary. Friends asked this old Indian to explain the change in his life. Reaching down, he picked up a little worm and placed it on a pile of leaves. Then touching a match to the leaves, he watched them smolder and burst into flames. As the flames worked their way up to the center where the worm lay, the old chief suddenly plunged his hand into the center of the burning pile and snatched out the worm. Holding the worm gently in his hand, he gave this testimony to the grace of God. Me, that worm. Me, that worm. God's wrath was upon us God plunged his hand in the form of sending his son to die for us and rescued us out of damnation and wrath. Me, that worm. Have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you ever come to the point and saying, Lord, I I am a sinner. By your word it says I am condemned and I trust in what you have done on the cross through your son. I put my faith and reliance on what he's done alone. And if you haven't done that, you can do that right now. Cry out to God with those truths in mind and place your faith in him. The other side of grace is this, though. You may be a believer, but are you walking by faith? Do you really believe? I mean, do you understand conflict of the world? and that you are walking by faith, and that if you walk by faith, it's because of God's grace. See, every part of the Christian life is by grace. It's something we don't deserve. It's not like, okay, Lord, thank you for getting me saved. Now I'll go, you know, I'll accomplish this on my own. If anything, Galatians says this. No, 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 no. Start to finish God's grace. Are you depending on him? Because if you don't, you know what your life will be? It'll just be this yo-yo thing. Yo-yo, and it's not pleasing to God. It should be an upward, why? Because, Lord, I am learning more and more to be dependent on you because it's your grace in my life that makes me what I need to be. It's not just me, self-effort. Are you walking with him? Let's stand as we have the great opportunity to worship the one that came to rescue us.